kingdom power. It is unleashed in I, your Holy Spirit, who does work that only he can do in changing us, in pointing out the things through the word of God that are not what they should be, in directing us when the way is unclear. We need your power every day. We need the power of the Holy Spirit this morning in this moment that we might understand the truth of your word as we read it, as we look at it together. And we pray that we would live in that power each day, even when we leave this place, that we will know you're strengthening for every step of the way. Thank you so much for these times when we can quiet our hearts, come apart from all of the busyness of life, Come into this place with brothers and sisters and be encouraged and challenged. I pray that that will take place this morning by your spirit for the glory of Christ. Amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Just a year or two uh, in the mountains of Colorado, a hiker got lost Um, And looking at the story and finding out some of the details of what actually happened, you realize that the interesting thing about this area in which the hiker got lost is that the cell reception is incredible. You can get calls, make calls, send text messages, do all kinds of stuff, get all your data. There's no problem getting a signal up here in the mountains when this guy got lost. And if you are like this guy and you should get, happen to get lost on this particular area of mountains in Colorado, you should probably answer your phone when it rings, even if you think it's spam. That's what the Department of Fisheries and Outdoor Wildlife in Colorado was putting out for a message after they finally found this guy because they had tried to call him numerous times as he wandered around the mountain fearing for his life. His phone was ringing, but he wasn't answering it because he thought it was spam. (laughs) This is a true story. Just happened a couple of years ago. He ignored it. Maybe you have read before stories of hikers lost in the woods who later will recount that they actually heard people calling out, but they hid from them. I'm not sure what this phenomenon is. I don't know why it happens. I would like to think that if I was lost and fearing for my life, I would go toward any human sound that I heard in hopes of rescue. But what makes this really interesting to me is that it has a very clear spiritual parallel. Because often we think, if we think about someone that we know, someone we work with, someone that is a part of our family perhaps even, that does not know the Lord, we think, well, if they only understood the gospel, if they only realized and understood the reality of hell, if they only understood how much Christ loved them, then surely they would accept him. And yet we know that that is not always the case. We know that there are people who understand the gospel of Christ, who hear it, and who reject him every day. 
I would hazard a guess that with the number of people that are here this morning, here in Theater 2 and Theater 3, perhaps even over in 4, or listening to the live stream at home right now, or who will listen to this later in the week after it's posted, that there are some people listening to this today who do not know Christ. The passage of Scripture that we're going to look at in Hebrews this morning is another warning. Thank you, by the way, for all of you who came back after having been here last week. Uh, Sometimes I fear that uh, you will not come back. So thank you for doing that. Uh, This warning has to do with rejecting Christ. And in some ways, it's even more terrifying than the warning last week. The writer is going to warn us that there is a point when a person's rejection of Jesus Christ is final. Now we talk all the time, don't we, about how God loves this world, about how Christ came to this earth to live and die a sacrificial death that by trusting him we might have forgiveness of sins, redemption, that we might be saved. And of course that is true. The word of God is very clear about that. And yet the writer to the Hebrews this morning is going to tell us that despite the grace and mercy of God that is extended to all those who walk this earth, that at some point... Those opportunities are going to be over. There's a point where there is no turning back. And we're going to hear some very difficult words today, but they are God's words and they are for us. And my hope and prayer today is that you will understand and for all the days from this one henceforth, that when we come together as a church here at Moss Brook, we will not skip over or skim over difficult words. They are God's and they are for us and we will look at them and we will seek to understand them. That's what we're going to do this morning. You have probably noticed by this time that Hebrews is a serious book with serious topics. And this is the fourth warning. Warning number one, don't drift away from salvation. That was in chapter two. Warning number two, don't harden your heart to God's word. Warning number three last week, don't remain immature. You must grow up. And this morning, warning number four, don't reject Christ. Now, as we know, the whole book of Hebrews is about Christ. The supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ over all things, his sufficiency for salvation. We're really going to dive into that here in the coming chapters here in a a few weeks and his sacrifice for us. And so when we understand that whole overarching picture of the book of Hebrews and then we look at this warning, we realize that it is most serious to reject Christ and in fact, Rejecting Christ is the only unforgivable sin. A lot of times I have conversations with people, I know Tim does the same, and they have questions about, well, is this sin forgivable? Is that sin forgivable? I'm telling you right now, my friends, the only sin that is unforgivable is rejecting Jesus Christ. 
Christ himself said that, in fact, in the book of Matthew. He said, those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That doesn't mean taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain. That means turning your back on the conviction of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us from sin and hell. Rejecting his conviction that Jesus is the Savior, that is the unforgivable sin. And that's what the writer talks about this morning. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. We'll start in verse 4. We'll do as we usually do. We'll read a verse or two, and then we'll kind of break it down, and then at the end we'll pull it all back together for us so that we can hear the message. For it is impossible, Hebrews 6, 4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, there's a lot in that, those verses. We're going to look at the next few moments. But I want you to see if we take some of these phrases out of the middle, going to get a little bit grammatical here today, Lisa. If we take some of those phrases out of the middle and we pull together the main thought of the sentence, what we see is this, it is impossible to restore them to repentance once they have fallen away. Now there are some qualifications here and some considerations, but the main thought is there is a point where it is impossible to restore someone to repentance. It is impossible for them to be saved. There is going to be an end to the opportunities to trust Christ at some point. Now the biggest question when we look at this passage of Scripture is who is he talking to? And who is he talking about? This is so serious, the impossibility of repentance and, and falling away from God. Of course, there are two main possibilities that we always think about when we read this passage and that people ask about, and it's this. First of all, is he talking to believers who fall away and lose their salvation? That's a question that many people ask. Is that who he's talking to? Or is he talking to unbelievers who have refused to trust Christ and turn away from the gospel? I want you to know right now that the short answer is very, very simple, and we start here, and that is that the writer is talking about lost people. He's talking about lost people who have refused to trust Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Three reasons. Pay attention very closely, because if you leave here this morning and you don't remember everything that I say, how many people are planning to remember everything that I say? Okay, only six people are even going to try. That's okay. I understand. I get it. I'm not offended. My skin is incredibly thick. I've been doing this for 30 years. I know you don't remember it all. But I want you to remember this, okay? There are three reasons why we know that the writer is talking to lost people and not to believers about losing their salvation. Here's number one. The first reason is that a true Christ follower cannot lose his or her salvation. A true Christ follower cannot lose their salvation. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I want you to picture this, my friends, very closely, pay very close attention. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, if you are a follower of Jesus, have trusted him for your salvation, you are in the hand of Jesus Christ, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. And if that was not enough, what does Jesus say? The Father who gave them to me also holds them in his hand. That's a double security right there. And we can never be snatched away. Over in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, Paul says this. Some of you will recognize these verses. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you have placed your faith in Christ and he has extended his love to you in the way of salvation, nothing will ever separate you from that love. Nothing. What did we just sing? I hope you pay attention when we sing these songs because we choose them very carefully. They're full of truth. Greater, did you hear that bridge in the last one? Greater is he who is what? living in you than he who is in the world. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says this, I am sure of this. Do you think Paul knew that we would have doubts and that we would waver and that we would get nervous and that we would get scared and we would wonder, right? Don't you? I do. I have I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God does not work in half measures, my friend. If he saved you, he will keep you. If he started his work in you, he will finish his work in you. That is a guarantee. And God's word, like him, is perfect, and he does not contradict himself in his word. So he would not, in John and in Romans and in Philippians and in all kinds of other places that we could look at if we had time, he would not say, your salvation is secure, and then over here in Hebrews say, be careful you don't lose it. He would not say that. One of the most important principles that we can use when we are looking at the Scripture and and seeking to understand what it means. Has anybody ever read the Scripture and said, gee, I wonder what that means? Yeah, I do that every week, by the way. How do I interpret this? How can I be sure what it is that God is saying to me here? Well, one of the most important principles that we use is that we interpret unclear passages by using clear ones. This Hebrews 6 passage is, can, is a little murky. It can be easy to misunderstand what it says. And so we go to the very clear passages, like those ones I just read for you, and that helps us to understand. Well, he can't be talking about, about saved people losing their salvation because right here it's very clear that we can't lose our salvation. Does everybody get it? Please nod your head if you get it. Okay. 
He's talking to lost people. Why? Because Christ followers cannot lose their salvation. Reason number two that we know he is talking to lost people. Because in verses 4 to 6 that I read for you as we began, there is no mention of salvation or any salvation words. He doesn't say anything about justification, sanctification, regeneration, new birth, He doesn't speak of these people as being born again, of being made holy, of being made righteous. These are the words that the New Testament uses when it talks to us about being saved. The New Testament talks to us about trusting Christ for salvation. New Testament talks to us about the Holy Spirit giving us new life, making us holy, making us righteous, sanctifying us, justifying us. None of those words are used in this passage. Nor are any of the phrases that are used, used anywhere else in the New Testament to indicate salvation. Reason number three that he is speaking to lost people is that in verse 9, which we will consider in a moment, there is a shift in the conversation. We're going to see it. It's very clear. The conversation changes. We're going to look at that in a moment. Now let's notice some of the words that he uses there to describe this group. These are the words which can be confusing to us and make us wonder if he's talking about saved people because he says they were enlightened. They were enlightened. Well, they were enlightened, but they were not transformed. Tell me, is it or is it not possible for you to hear information that could change your life and yet your life might not be changed. Did I say that clearly enough for you to understand it? How many of you know that a steady diet of huge amounts of ice cream is not going to lead to slim and trim waistlines? How many of you know that? Now, be honest, okay? You all know that. Hey, you know what? I know that too. And yet, (laughs) guess what I had last night at about 10 (laughs) o'clock? A big, and I mean embarrassingly huge, bowl of ice cream. And I didn't just put the ice cream in there. I put really deliciously thick chocolate fudge syrup on it. Is it not possible to hear information that could change your life and yet not be changed? Of course it is. We hear that kind of information every day. Not everyone who is enlightened by the truth of the gospel is saved, are they? Now everyone who is saved has been enlightened, (laughs) but not everyone who is enlightened is saved. What else did he say? He said they had tasted the heavenly gift. Now, this is the one that really gets a lot of people. They had tasted it. They tasted it. They put it in their mouths. They ingested it. I want to suggest to you that they tasted the heavenly gift, but they did not accept the heavenly gift. Tell me, is it or is it not possible to taste something without accepting it? Of course. The first time that I was in Brazil with Dave Shaw, 
we went to a little village, and we went to this hut to visit this family, and we sat outside on cut logs, stumps that they had set around. And, of course, I didn't understand what they were saying because I don't speak Portuguese, but Dave does. And so they were talking amongst themselves, and Dave said, they're going to bring us a special treat. They want us to eat. You know where this is going. <laughs> it wasn't fried tarantulas or anything like that. They're not psychos. But they brought out these little bowls. And Dave said, oh, this is good. I love this stuff. And I said, well, what is it? He said, well, they call it takaka. Now, right there, I should have known that this was not going to end well. Did you hear what they called it? Takaka. I don't know what it was. I can't remember. It was explained to me. I've tried to block it out of my mind. But it was this thick, viscous, clear, gel-like something <laughs> in a bowl with a spoon. And I'm not trying to be funny. They love this stuff down there. It's a, it's, it's a treat. And so they gave us each a bowl. And I'm thinking, I cannot offend these people. So I'm going to eat. My mother taught me to eat what was put in front of me. So I am going to eat this. And so I took a spoonful, and I put it in my mouth, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm serious, I'm not exaggerating, I, I started to, you know, wretch. I mean, I could not, I tasted it in my mouth, and I thought, I'm going to lose it, I'm seriously going to lose it, right here, in this spot. I cannot eat this. Now, fortunately, I was able to mime eating some of this until our host ducked back inside to do something and I quickly grabbed Dave's bowl and shoved mine in his hand <laughs> and sat there with an empty bowl and he finished it. He, he loves the stuff. He finished it. I tasted it. I did not accept it. <laughs> I did not ingest it. He said they shared in the Spirit. But they did not receive the Spirit. They were there. They were with the brothers and sisters. They heard the Word taught. They saw the Holy Spirit work in people's hearts and lives. They probably even experienced some of the life change that was happening in other people around them and were able to be a part of some of the blessing of that, and yet they did not accept it themselves. All of these indicate someone who has had full exposure to the gospel, who has had their eyes open to the truth of the word of God, and yet have not accepted Christ, have chosen to walk away. This person in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, was never truly saved. It may have looked like they were saved. It looked like I was eating ta-ka-ka like nobody's business. <laughs> but I was not, trust me. I was not eating it. It looked like they were saved, but they were never truly saved. Now he gives us an analogy. Look at verse 7. 
for the land that has or for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God but if it bears thorns and thistles it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned there is only one way to identify those who truly belong to Christ my friends but it takes some time Because the presence of fruit is what tells the tale. Now I want you to notice here that he says the rain falls everywhere. (laughs) But that doesn't determine anything. God's word goes everywhere. If you're here in this room this morning, you are hearing God's word. You are hearing about Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. You are hearing that if you reject Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. That doesn't mean that you're all saved (laughs) just by me pronouncing it. Just by the rain falling on the ground doesn't mean that good things are going to come up is what he is saying. That is the analogy. Rain, of course, in the word of God often speaks of blessing. And even unbelievers experience blessing. God provides on some level for everyone who walks the face of the earth. He gives them life and breath and resources. But it is the presence of fruit that tells the tale. Now, of course, genuine believers can do terrible things. We know that. We have all sinned. Even those of us who truly walk with Christ have sinned. You can look in the New Testament and you can see the disciple Peter and his terrible denials of Jesus Christ. But a true Christ follower will always, hear me now, always go on to bear fruit. Always. It is a certainty, as is bad fruit in unbelievers. These eventualities are ensured Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Do sometimes we as believers have bad patches, rough stretches, where we doubt, where we fear, where we sin. Yes, of course we do. We are human, and we are inconsistent, if nothing else. We are consistently inconsistent. But a true believer will always go on to bear fruit. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is the conversation shift that I alluded to earlier. He says, things that belong, when I think about you, he says, I think about things that belong to salvation. What a critical phrase, indicating that the earlier list (laughs) did not refer to salvation did not belong to salvation. And here he, he also speaks to the responsibility of, that we have, that I have, that Tim and I have as pastors to know and care for you and the condition of your, your spiritual condition. That's why last week I said some of you need to grow up. 
And this week we see and must say, some of you are in danger of falling away altogether if you continue to profess salvation, if you continue to hang around here and look the part and take part in all the festivities without actually placing your faith in Christ. But most of you are truly saved, (laughs) for which I am grateful. And that's what the writer is saying here. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He comforts them. He reassures them that God knows their hearts and that God sees the fruit of their lives and their service. If you were here a few weeks ago, remember when I spoke on uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, where we said the word of God is alive and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces our hearts so that God knows the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And then if you remember verse 13, it says that everything is naked and exposed before God. That's scary, isn't it? Everything that's in here that we are so careful to hide from everyone else. I don't want them to see that. It's naked and exposed before God. Now let me tell you this, friends. That is terrifying if your heart is full of sin and corruption. But it is wonderfully comforting if you are serving God. Because even if no one else sees your heart, even if no one else knows the reality of your heart, God does. God does. And finally this. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, he encourages them by showing his concern for them. He has invested his in their lives, and he cares about what happens for them, and so he longs for their growth and progress. So let's recap these last three verses here for a moment. When we walk with the Lord, when we trust him, when we worship him, when we serve and care for other people, God sees that because he sees and knows everything that we do. He knows those who are his. And when we live this way, he's saying here, and when we live this way, it also assures our hearts. Because guess what can be true? And at the same time, we can know that our salvation is secure because of those verses that we read before. Remember this, this, this. We'll never be separated from God. Even though we can know that that's true, is it not possible that sometimes our hearts can betray us? And it doesn't feel like it's true, even if we know that it is. And so the writer here says that when we are serving God with earnestness, the word means diligence, it means quick obedience, it means God tells us what we are to do and we do it, we don't delay, then that assures our hearts. He doesn't want them to fear or worry about whether or not they're saved. And and I don't want that too. I don't want that either. The purpose of preaching this message, of showing you these verses, of laying them out for you and not skipping on to the next, is not so that you will go home and doubt your salvation. I don't want you to do that. That's not the point of this passage. 
The point of this passage is that some are in danger of rejecting Christ. And you can assure yourself that you are his by living an obedient life. Catherine, I am convinced that that thing did not say 30 minutes when we started. It's already to zeros, all zeros. I have a doomsday clock back here that's supposed to tell me when I'm done. So, what's the warning? Don't reject Christ. Don't reject Christ. Again, my friends, this is not about a brief struggle with doubt or insecurity. If you have a doubt now and again, if you struggle sometimes with insecurity, the security of your salvation, this does not mean that you have rejected Christ. That is not what he's talking about. This is not about the guilt or shame that we feel after an egregious sin. This is about a deliberate, willful rejection of Jesus. And this is the kind of rejection that happens not usually after someone hears the gospel just for the first time, but someone who is intimately acquainted with faith, someone who has perhaps had an intellectual understanding of the gospel, someone who may have even experienced an emotional connection to the body. Oh, I love this church. If I had heard that once, I've heard it a thousand times, and I'm thankful that you love this church, but I've heard a thousand people say it who are nowhere near this place anymore. You may have felt an emotional connection to the body. And Tim and I and the elders bear the responsibility of knowing and caring about your spiritual condition and caring for you and challenging you and even warning you. And we know that within this body, within the visible body, there are three groups of people. Some of you are in danger of completely following away. You're part of the family. You enjoy its blessings. You like coming here. You like worshiping. You like even hearing the word taught. You like fellowshipping. But the danger is that you could reject Christ, that you could turn completely away, and that is a very dangerous place to be. Second group is the group I talked to last week. Some of you need to grow up. Some of you have been walking with God far too long to be where you are. And I had many, many comments last week after the service. Many of you came and spoke to me afterwards or spoke to me this week about the message and how real it was and how important it was and, and that you heard what I had to say. Okay. If that's true, then you know... What needs to happen next, dot, dot, dot. You need to do something about it. You need to get up. You need to get going. You can't just hear. You've got to change. And, of course, the third group is that some of you are true Christ followers and you are walking faithfully with Christ and your lives bear the fruit that confirms this. Here's the thing. Which group are you in? You're in one of those three groups, every one of you. Which group are you in? 
In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, John says this, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The Antichrist, that's a whole other topic, of course, is coming in the future who will deceive many. But he says many Antichrists. Now notice how he describes them in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Some will come into the body and then they will go out and it will be very clear that they were not really part of us, part of the body because of their rejection of Christ. Now these warnings are tough to teach. It's hard to say these things. But it's my passion for you to know the truth because the truth is the only thing that can change your heart. And I want you to please know, and if Tim was standing here, he would say the exact same thing. Please know my sincere affection for all of you and my concern for all of you. That's why we do this, that you might know the truth and understand that God alone is the one to whom we must come. We must come to the altar of repentance and trust Jesus Christ before it is too late. Do not ever take your position before the Lord lightly. That's the message for us. Don't reject Christ if you don't truly know him. But for those of us that do, don't take it lightly what we have. And my friends, every time you have the opportunity to share the truth of the gospel of Christ, do it. Do it. You don't know how many more opportunities the person you are speaking to is going to have. Nothing is guaranteed. We have no moment beyond the moment we are in right now that is guaranteed to us. So share the gospel with those you know need it. If you have someone in your life right now, someone that you love, that you know does not know Christ, make a deliberate effort today, this week, to share the gospel with them. You might say, well, it's embarrassing, it's hard. What if they laugh in my face? What if they reject me? My friends, you do not want to go into eternity regretting that you did not take the opportunity to share the truth with someone who needed it. The grace of Jesus Christ is available to all. Father, thank you so much for speaking to us through your word this morning. We need it. We need the reminders of the importance of our decision before Christ, of our standing before him. Help us to not take it lightly. Lord, for those who are here this morning who do not know Christ, may they understand that today is the day. Now is the opportunity to come to the altar to trust Christ. For those of us that do, Father, I pray that you will help us to assure our own hearts of the security of our salvation by the way that we live. May the fruit be evident, not for its own sake, but for your glory. Go with us into this community that we may be lights in dark places. In Christ's name. 
Thanks, folks. I hope you have a great week.